the basic premise for this series, My Name is Victorious, is, is, is incredibly simple. It's profound, but it's incredibly simple. And the idea is that when you and I make a decision or when we made a decision to follow Jesus, that in that moment, he didn't just tweak the old that was in us. He actually made us a brand new creation. And in making us a brand new creation, he actually gives us a brand new name. He doesn't just stick a new label on the old contents. This week I was watching the show Porn Stars. Now, <clears throat> those of you listening to our podcast, if I don't want you stumbling and being ejected off the back of the treadmill uh, right now. Uh, I was watching the show Porn Stars, spelt P-A-W-N. So when I was watching this show, P-A-W-N Stars, uh, this week, um, the premise of the show is uh, it's, a, it's a 24-hour PAWN store that's located just off the strip in uh, Las Vegas, and uh, it's a little 30-minute show, and the idea is that people come in off the street with something that they hope is, is worth you know, some money, and they're looking to kind of sell it to the owners of this PAWN store and, uh, called PAWN Stars. And um, oh, man, I don't know why I picked this story to start with. I'm already tying myself in knots. Anyway... Uh, and uh, so this week, this guy comes in and he brings in a 1921 bottle of Dom Perignon champagne. Now, those of you who understand uh, champagne history would know that Dom Perignon is named after a French a Catholic monk named Dom Perignon. And in 1921, it was when he made his first vintage of champagne. It was released in 1938 to the public and there was only a limited number of bottles available. And so a guy rolls in to the PAWN store with a, with a, a first edition uh, 1921 Dom Perignon bottle of champagne. The label itself was actually in pretty good condition. It was definitely authentic. And, uh, and, he's, and he's hoping that the PAWN store is gonna give him some money and he's gonna be able to go and probably uh, blow it on the strip uh, playing slot machine. But um, it, it, what was interesting, and I'm watching this going, man, you know, this, I mean, surely this is worth a lot of money. It's 1921. It's one of the very first ever uh, bottles of Dom Perignon Champagne. And uh, when the owners of the store aren't sure, you know, the authenticity or the value of something, it's not in their kind of general wheelhouse, they'll bring in an expert. It's all pretty staged, I know that. And so they bring in an expert on, uh, on champagne and he comes in and, and he says, yeah, it's definitely authentic. It's definitely a 1921 bottle of Dom Perignon. The label's uh, not bad. But then he lifts it up and he starts to kind of look through a bit of a translucent light to, to inspect the contents. And he says, look, this is, this is partly evaporated because over time corks shrink and, and, uh, and liquid evaporates out the side. It's, it's full of sediment and it probably tastes like some of the worst vinegar you're ever gonna taste in your life. And it was on that basis alone that the owners of the PWN store decided not to purchase this particular bottle of Dom Perignon. And the reason I share that is because in that particular story, and in that particular instance, it wasn't merely the label on its own that, that was required for that to be valuable. Actually, the contents matter as well. And it's one thing for you and I to be, to be getting this revelation that Jesus gives us a new name while still being vividly aware that some of the contents haven't shifted much. Some of the contents are still the same as they were when I realized that God calls me restored, yet I still feel a little bit damaged. I still haven't seen the full 
repair of that damage. You, I, I realize God says my name is overflowing, but I'm still, still feeling somewhat overwhelmed. The, the, the idea is, and this is what I want to get to this, this morning, is that God gives us a new name and, and, and puts a new label on us, but he's not just doing that. That's not the end of the game. He also wants to and has the ability to, and it comes with the promise that he's going to transform us from the inside out, that he's actually going to fix the contents, not just stick a new label on something that's previously been damaged. But that is a process, and that takes time. And when God gives us a new name, it's, always, it's almost always the name that comes first and the transformation follows later. There's people right through the Bible that God gave them a new name, but the actual promise, the actual transformation, the actual end working of that didn't come till later. God spoke to a guy named Abram who was married but was childless and said, I'm gonna now call, not, your, your, your name is no longer Abram, it's now Abraham. And Abraham means that you'll be a father of many nations. That's, that's a declaration of your destiny. And yet it wasn't till many, many, many years later that Abraham and his wife had their first child. In fact, he was 100 years old. The new name came first, the transformation came in due course, but there's a declaration of destiny that comes with the new name and we need to understand and not get discouraged to understand that it's actually quite appropriate and quite normal for there to be a lag between the declaration and the actual outworking of that promise. And our job in the gap is to not let go of that promise to not lose sight of that declaration, to not forget it, to not get discouraged, to not think, well, it hasn't fully happened yet. That's right, it hasn't fully happened yet. It's a process. A number of years ago, I, I, I took my first trip to the US and I was over there doing some, some work with our previous church and I was flying solo. Louis came subsequently on, on other trips, but on this particular trip, I was there on my own. And um, it was in the early days of the internet. And so... It wasn't as easy then as it is now, so please don't judge me, to know where the good coffee shops are in the US. And so I just kind of played it safe and rolled into a Starbucks. I know. Hashtag don't judge me. So I rolled into a Starbucks and, uh, and I wanted a, uh, a, like a, a, just a traditional American style coffee, which is just black coffee. And um, now here we call that a long black. If you've never been to America, please don't go into a coffee shop and ask for a long black. It doesn't mean what you think it means, and in fact, you'll probably get arrested. So I knew that much, so I asked them for an Americano. That's what this particular coffee is called. I would like an Americano. Now, the process at Starbucks is very, very uh, simple. The, the person at the cash register, you give them the order, Americano, please. They say, good, fine. Who's the coffee for? You tell them your name. They write your name on the cup, and they hand that to the barista. And so I say, uh, I say, I'd like an Americano, please. Yep, sure, what's your name? My name is Mark. Write it down, hand it to the barista. And what you do is you go and wait in a little holding area uh, for a few minutes. And when your coffee's been made by the barista, they put on a little, uh, at the other end of the service bench, and then they just call out your name. And when they call out your name, you know that your coffee's ready. And you look at the cup, and there's your name on it, and you grab the cup, and, and off you go. It's very, very simple. Well, at least you'd think it's very, very simple. <clears throat> so I roll in. I'd like an Americano, please. Sure, what's your name? My name's Mark. 
fine, just go and wait over there. I'll wait over there. And I'm waiting over there. <clears throat> and a couple of minutes later, I hear uh, Americano for Mike. Americano for Mike. Mike. Americano. Mike. Now, I'm actually the only person in the store at this moment in time. <laughs> so you would think that I would twig that, that I'm Mike. But the thing is, I'm not Mike, I'm Mark. So I just stood there waiting. It wasn't protesting. I just figured it was someone else. I didn't know who else because I was the only one in the store. And I'm just standing there. And they're, and they're look, they're very, I don't know. I think they're probably, they're trained for this. They're, they're trained to not make you feel like a, a moron because like it would have actually been okay for them at that point go, Mike! And I go, and but they didn't. They'd look around, like calling, calling this name out to all the people in the store that, that it probably was an order for. I was the only one in the store. Mike, Americana for Mike. And after about a, a minute of this, I'm like, uh, I go up and say, um, this coffee, is this for me? Yeah, 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 it's for Mike. And I'm like, uh, actually, uh, my name's Mark. And they're like, yeah, that's right, Mike. See, Aussies, if you haven't figured out about yourself, we're very lazy. We don't pronounce the R in words. In fact, not only don't we pronounce the R, we swap it for an extra A. So my name is spelled, in America, spelled M-A-A-K, Mark. And Mark likes to park in the car park. So I now know when I go to the U.S. and order coffee, I have to actually take out that second A and drop an R in for the good of humanity. My name is Mark, and I would like an American <laughs> But this is the mistake that I made, is I was listening out for the wrong name. And it's a mistake that too many people make, is they actually have been given a brand new name, but based on force of habit, based on history, based on how they're feeling still, they're still listening out for the old name, and yet God's calling us by our new name. And we need to develop a new habit, a new set of listening skills that listens not for the old name, but starts listening out for the new name. Your name is restored, even though you still feel a little damaged and possibly have spent so long feeling damaged is that that's the only name you've identified with for such a long time is that you haven't actually trained your ear yet to hear God's voice calling, your name is restored. I don't feel restored. Your name is restored. Yeah, but I've, done, I've seen a little bit of God's restoration, but I still feel very damaged. Your name is restored. Don't forget that. Don't let go of that. Don't stop listening to that. Don't stop tuning in for that. Don't stop pursuing that. Don't stop orienting your heart towards that. Don't stop opening your life for the transformation that will see actually your circumstances become restored, even though you started damaged, even when God said your name is restored. We've got to start listening for the correct name. My name is qualified. That should say qualified. <laughs> Person that did that is uh, fired. Uh, I'll be having a very strong chat with myself tomorrow. <laughs> my name is enough. My name is restored. My name is overflowing. Start paying attention to your new name. Now, let me show you a little bit of a slice. There's something that Paul wrote to a church in Rome. If you've got our Elevate app, you can open that, tap the Bible tile, just to let you know it's on repeat. There's something janky going on there. Uh, I jokingly said a couple of weeks ago so that we can read the same thing multiple times in one sitting. Maybe that's true. I don't think so. 
Uh, but it's going to take you to a, a letter, a slice of a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, Paul was a heavyweight of the early church. In fact, his name was originally Saul and his job was to, to kill and pursue and persecute Christians. And actually Jesus intercepted him and said, buddy, I'm going to give you a new name and it's going to come with a new destiny. You're no longer Saul, the persecutor of Christians. You're now Paul and you're going to go and you're going to start churches and you're going to use your skills and your talents that you used to, use to, to squash the church to actually raise up the church. A new name, a new destiny, a new declaration, a new promise. And these churches, one of them was a church in Rome. And uh, the church was growing there. But here's the thing to understand. When you read this letter to the church in Rome, here's the thing to understand. Is that this was at the height of the Roman Empire. And Rome was obviously the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And this church was starting to bubble up within the city of Rome and it wasn't looked on favorably by the authorities there. In fact, if you were a Jesus follower in this particular time in history, you were considered an enemy of the state. You weren't just someone who had some marginal beliefs that most of the rest of the Roman world didn't actually at that time believe in. No, you were actually seen as a threat to the Roman Empire, a threat to the governance, a threat to the regime. You were an enemy of the state. And so Paul's writing to this church that's starting to grow in the context of them actually being persecuted for what they believed. And, 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 and some of you should even actually on that basis be able to identify with this letter because some of you are the only Christians in your workplace. Some of you are the only Jesus followers in your family. Some of you are the only Jesus followers in your neighborhood. And, and, and some of you, it causes people to look funny at you. It, it causes people to ask dumb questions. And I say dumb questions, just meaning like people like to uh, take the P-I-S-S out of uh, Jesus followers because they think we're a bunch of uh, people who decided to follow Jesus and have a lobotomy at the same time. Um, so you, you'll identify with this. And, and some of you, and I know this because you've shared this with me, some of you actually experience hostility from some of your colleagues and neighbors and family members because of what you believe. So this church in Rome is not that different from some of our own experiences as far as what it means to be an enemy of the state or to be persecuted or to be something of a person swimming upstream when the rest of society is expecting us to swim downstream. And so this is who's Paul, who Paul's writing to. And this is the context of this letter. I'd encourage you to read it from uh, start to finish. But let me just drop us in at uh, Romans chapter eight and verse 31, Paul writes, so what do you think? Remember, this is the church. These are a group of people who are being persecuted for what they believe. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who, and who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Again, remember the context. These people are being tangled with every day. But Paul's speaking to a new reality. Paul's speaking to a different reality. Paul's not speaking to their circumstances. Paul's speaking to their destiny. He's speaking to their future. He's speaking to be what, about what God's promised for them. Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us in the presence of God, at this very moment, while you're being persecuted, while you're feeling like you're the minority, while you're living as an enemy of the state, is, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. 
My name is victorious, not because of anything I've done. Your name is victorious, not because of anything you've done. Your name is victorious because of what Jesus has done. He's actually gone ahead and won the victory for us. Having said that, our responsibility is to take a hold of that victory, to actually claim that victory. And that sounds a little bit, uh, you know, what, what does that mean? Like, to, to, to claim this, what does that mean? Well, you, chances are you do it every week already, and you don't even realize it. You're, you're, uh, you're at the photocopier Monday morning, and your colleague rolls in and goes, so, uh, how'd your footy team do on the weekend? And you say, ah, oh, we won. Now, at that moment, they should look at you and say, really, did you play? And you go, no, no, when's the game, though? Yeah, really? And so... West Coast Eagles, yeah, West Coast Eagles wins the game, yeah. Like, I'm obviously not using the Dockers as an example because I'm talking about victory here. Um, I know, I have issues. I'm a disillusioned former Dockers supporter. I'm in therapy. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you went to the game. Yeah, you went to the game. And at the end of the, end of the game, did, did you all sing, sing the, the, the theme song? Heck yes, mate, of course I did, of course I did. We're the Eagles. We're, no, you... If you got this right, what you should be singing is, they're the eagles, and pointing, you're not the eagles. There's 21 eagles, and you ain't one of them. No matter how big your flipping blue and yellow scarf is, you weren't on that field. You had nothing to do with that victory. But you say to your colleague, we won, and you sing the song, we're the eagles, because you're claiming that victory for yourself. You identify with the West Coast Eagles, so you're claiming that victory. We identify with Jesus. We had nothing to do with Him winning the victory on the cross. Nothing. In fact, we had everything to do with why He wouldn't and shouldn't and had to. But when we identify, same goes in a couple of weeks' time. You hear it here first, folks. In a couple of weeks' time, when the Socceroos win the World Cup, you and I, we are going to be 3 a.m. That better, that better be optimistic laughter, not scoffing, cynical, mocking laughter. Even you, Johnny. Yeah, even you. I, you're smiling. I can see your teeth. You can't hide from me. All right. Here's the thing. In a couple of weeks' time, when the Socceroos win the World Cup, you and I, 3 a.m., are gonna be dancing down Murray Street Mall saying, we won, we won, we won the World Cup. No, they won the World Cup, but we're taking a hold of that victory because we identify as Aussies with the Socceroos. Do you get it? Yes. Nothing to do with the win, but we can claim the victory for ourselves. And so Paul says, yeah, there's circumstances that are gonna come your way that are gonna make you feel defeated. And it's possible some of you have actually felt defeated for so long, you've actually lost the, 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 the taste of victory. You, you haven't actually tasted it for so long. You wonder if it's even in your future. I'm telling you, it is in your future. It is in your future. It's been promised. Your name is victorious. And Paul asks three questions. And actually, he wants them to be questions that we ask when we're facing circumstances that make us feel anything but victorious. Because they're rhetorical questions. They're questions that come with an answer preloaded before they're even asked. Paul asks the question and wants us to ask the question, how can I lose? Answer, I can't. He wants us to ask the question, is there anything else Jesus wouldn't gladly or freely do for me? The answer is, no, there's nothing else. He would do it all over again. He wants us to ask, who would dare tangle with God 
by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare to even point a finger? This one, this one I got a little tangled up in because these people were experiencing others tangling with them. We're experiencing everyone in their society apart from this band of believers pointing the finger at them. So Paul writes this thing that doesn't make any sense, but again, here's the thing. Paul's looking at their circumstances and their life from an eternal perspective, not from a circumstantial perspective. And in that particular setting, it's actually the people pointing the finger that are the idiots. Because if you've already won the victory, someone else can point the finger and say, loser, loser, loser. And you're like, mate, you have a clue what you're talking about. If anyone's a loser in this, don't call people a loser. <laughs> Let me get our music team and friends uh, rolling out. Paul then uh, continues on and writes this. Let me read that for you and try to distract your attention with me and re- instead of the 30 people that are gonna be coming to stage. Johnny. <laughs> that, that, just so you know, that wasn't me. Uh, Johnny, Johnny, can you float? Float to the next uh, slide, please. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Jesus' love for us? Again, it's a rhetorical question. There is no way, not trouble. By the way, this is all stuff that you may think that it could drive a wedge between you and Jesus. This is maybe things that you've experienced. This may be circumstances that you may be even going through right now. Here's Paul's list. The laundry list of stuff that you and I may face, have faced, will face, and yet Paul's giving us this insurance that none of this could drive a wedge between us and Jesus. Trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood, those enemies. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks, they pick us off one by one, yet... None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. Paul encourages us to helicopter up from our muddy, grimy, sticky, seemingly helpless circumstances and take the long view, take the eternal view that 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 even in the worst, even in troubles, even in hard times, even when there's persecution, that, that we've already got the greatest prize that you could ever, ever have. And in any moment, any circumstance, nothing compares to the prize of us being able to live in relationship with Jesus. And it's because of that, that our name is victorious. And I cannot encourage us strongly enough, and that includes you all, to live not for victory, but live from victory. The stuff that Jesus calls us to fight for is worth fighting for. Your kids are worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Your health is worth fighting for. It was said to me just this week, you either fight for your health now or you're gonna be fighting for your health later. Either way, at some point in your history, you're gonna be fighting for your health. But it's worth fighting for because Jesus has promised us victory in all of these circumstances. But we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. When we fight as Jesus followers, it's actually, actually an unfair fight because we're empowered to live differently and live at a different level 
and as P.T. Bonham, a.k.a. Hugh Jackman, a.k.a. Rush Albini says, this is me. <laughs>